24 right now. She's obliterating the record. Alicia Barnell is about to four-peat. The only man in history to do it. Kara Goucher, she wanted to do this event. It was important to her. Here in Duluth, how sweet it is. Her arm raised in triumph. Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of our Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast, brought to you by Essentia Health. I'm your host, longtime Grandma's Race announcer, Peter Graves. Now, this is our first ever episode, and we really thank you for finding us. We hope you enjoy it. This will be, we hope, a great place for Grandma's Marathon news, for stories, and for inspiration. Well, Our guest for this inaugural episode, certainly no stranger to the marathon weekend, the legendary Minnesota runner, Dick Beardsley, who joins us from his home in Bemidji. And uh, Dick, it is a delight and a privilege to have you on. Well, Peter, thank you. It's an honor for me to be on, uh, especially this this first episode. And, you know, Grandma's Marathon is holds uh, very close to my heart and um golly it's 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 hard to believe that uh it was well gosh next grandma's it'll be 40 years since i ran my one i know yeah absolutely unbelievable and both of us dick uh we do enjoy talking and we've got so much to cover we may not get to it all but uh i'd like to uh start uh by talking about where it began for you, how you got into running. I think you were at Wyzetta High School. Uh, and tell me a little bit how you got started. Yeah, well, Peter, yeah, I went to Wyzetta High School. And uh, that was when Wyzetta was a, a small town. And we didn't have a lot of kids out for the cross-country team. I, I went out in my uh, junior year, which was the fall of 1973. And the only reason I even went out for any kind of sports was I thought it would help me get a girlfriend. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I went out for the football team. And uh, after I got gang tackled and came up out of that pile half torn apart, I thought, man, there's no girl worth going through this. And uh, a friend of mine said I ought to come out for the cross country team. And I, I didn't even know what cross country was. And, and, uh, but I showed up for it. And, and I, I tell you, the, the first, uh, run we ever did was what the, our coach called the around the block run. Well, it was actually 3.2 miles long and I, uh, I had never run before and I had to walk the last mile, but I remember coming across an imaginary finish line that first day I'd ever ran. And it was like, I thought, wow, I, I don't know how far I just ran and walked, but I made it. And um, I was, I just fell in love with the sport almost immediately. Although I've got to tell you, Peter, about the first two weeks that I came out for the cross country team, I had shin splints so bad I could hardly walk, let alone run. But eventually they went away and I, I wasn't very good um, either my junior or senior year. I was a lot better my senior year, but but I, I don't know, there was something about running long distance that really uh, kind of just glimmered in my soul and uh, I've been doing it ever since. And at that time, Dick, was there somebody uh a coach or, or an inspiration. Like uh, one of the things I I heard was that um, you uh, 
really loved and found inspiration in Ron Dawes book, the self-made Olympian. Um, what were the influences from coaches or personalities that uh, kind of inspired you then? Yeah. Um, I tell you in, in high school, my best friend was uh, George Ross and George was a year in front of me and George was a stud. I mean, he was a really, really good runner. And in fact, he got a full ride scholarship to run at Mankato state after he graduated from high school and his mom and dad or my godparents and his dad, Joe Ross, was really influential and uh, in, in helping me in my running. And, and George and I used to run a lot together. And then when George went off to college, you know, uh, Joe, his dad, Joe, would would still he'd come to all all the meets I ran. And on the weekends, I'd, I'd run out in his cow pasture and he'd tie me doing he had to set up a little quarter mile track out in the cow pasture, up and down and dodging over cow pies and whatnot. And and but but Joe and and uh, and his son George were were big influencers, especially for me when I first got into running. They were you know encouraged me and and uh, we had some great workouts together. And so life progresses. Uh, you ran your first marathon, which was a two forty seven fourteen. 1977 up in Hurley, uh, Hurley, Wisconsin, Pavo Nurmi. Uh, my guess is after that very first time, you were completely hooked. <laughs> I, I wish, Peter. I remember <laughs> I remember. I got done with the Pavo Nurmi Marathon, and I'm thinking, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> well, I, I think my longest run going into it was about an eight or ten miler, you know, and and uh, those last six, seven miles, boy, I struggled. But, you know, later that fall, I, I ran uh, my second one. I, I kind of got over the, nause the nauseation of uh, the first one. And so I ran the, the City of Lakes Marathon, which is, of course, was the prelude to the Twin Cities Marathon. And, and uh, I ran that one and I, and I finished, but I got done with that one. And I really swore that I was never going to do this again. And uh, but once the the pain and the suffering of that race kind of faded away, I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to want to really try to get halfway good at running a marathon, I need to train for them. And, and then I started getting a little more serious about it and realized that, you know, you've got to you got to put in a lot of miles and long runs and things like that to get ready if you're going to run a good marathon. And, and then even even then doing everything right. You never know what race day is going to be. It's kind of like a crapshoot. Your times got lower and lower. And incidentally, I should point out, uh, Dick's the only man to ever run 13 consecutive personal bests in the marathon. That's in the Guinness Book of World Records for uh, that feat. Um, then early 80s, I mean, things are really coming together. Yeah, they, they really started coming together, Peter. And um, you know, I ran the, the Houston Marathon in 1981, and uh, I finished second to Bill Rogers. And, you know, I, I think I was about 20 seconds behind him at the end. And he was kind of like my, my not a mentor, but he was somebody I just admired. And, and he was kind of like my Mickey Mantle of the running world back then. And, and just to be in a race with Bill Rogers, let alone, you know, being close to him at the end really kind of helped uh, trigger things. And then I got home from Houston or yeah, from Houston and, and I got invited 
three weeks later to run a marathon in Beppu, Japan. And I finished uh, third there right behind a couple of Japanese runners. And, um, and then I got invited to the London Marathon, the very first one back in 1981, and was fortunate to, to win that, but not by myself. I won it, me and a, a good friend of mine now, we, we weren't, didn't know each other at the time, Inga Simonson, um, him and I uh, tied that race. And then um, uh, I'd already had been talking to Scott Keenan, you know, the Grandma's founder and race director back then, and and about running the 81, 1981 Grandma's. And I'd already told him I was going to run it. And and, uh, and that's the one that, you know, of all the marathons, Peter, that I've run, and even including Boston the following year, the one that, that always sticks out most in my mind is that 1981 Grandma's Marathon. You're so well known for it, and and really in Minnesota etched a name for yourself. Uh, 1981 uh, time of 209.37, and what is so remarkable is that was a course record that stood for 33 years till it was broken in 2014. I I don't know. I think I talked to you after it was broken, and I think you felt slightly relieved. What was your reaction? <laughs> well, Peter, I tell you, I. Uh... When uh, Dominic and Doro, when, when he was, you know, I was in the lead vehicle and, and we had to pull over by the, uh, the iron ore ship there, the museum there right towards the end of the finish line. And so I jump out and, and, and I'm yelling at him. I'm going, you're going to break the record. You're going to break the record. And, and I always said over the years, and I really meant this. I said, I hope I can be one of the first people to, for whoever breaks the record, which it will be broken eventually. I knew that. I wanted to be the first one to congratulate that people. And I remember somebody from Grandma's Marathon called the radio truck and said, get Beardsley over here. They're going to break his record. And then I'm sprinting over there, cutting across the little footbridge to get across the canal there. And, and the police were there and they opened up the gate. And literally, I ran into the finish line. And as Dominic came across the line, I was the first one to give him a hug. And it was, it was really neat. And Peter, I got to tell you, I was so excited for him and and it was it was so emotional for me. I'm going to get choked up here now. You know, I am I probably got interviewed more after the record was broken than when I broke the record 33 years before, but and the reason I got so so choked up after the race, it wasn't because the record was broken. That's what records are for. They're meant to be broken. But <clears throat> I'm going to get choked up. But for me, being a Minnesota kid, it was such an honor. I mean, an absolute honor to have that record at the Grandma's Marathon for as long as it stood. Um, it was it was an honor for me to have that, and um, it was that race that year. It was it was just something about it with you know Gary Bjorklund in the race, and and you know he was such a mentor you know, as, as a runner and he helped me in that race. And then the, at the end, you know, my mom and dad had never seen me run a marathon before and, and they were both at the finish line. And, and I remember coming through the finish shoot and my mom and dad were crying and hugging me and I was crying. It was, um, it was a day I'll never forget as long as I live. Yeah, and and you know, I was at the finish line announcing that, and and it, it was a, a day that I will always remember. Anybody who knows Dick Beardsley uh, knows that 
He is a special guy who really makes running a celebration of all that's good in life. And um, through his motivational talks, uh, his fishing guide work, his storytelling, he's absolutely marvelous dick on the radio. You always make it fun. And and so I want to segue to a question that uh, maybe first-time grandma's runners are thinking about this for the first time. What makes grandma's marathon so special? Oh my gosh, Peter. So many things. First off, the, the, the folks that put on, you know, the grandma's marathon from Scott Keenan, when he first started to Shane now, and, and all the, the folks that have worked at grandma's, many of them for many, many years. And of course the, the sponsorships they get, and the community, the, honestly, there, there's not, I don't believe there's a town, a city around the country that, that is as involved in that marathon as the folks in Duluth. I mean, they support that thing every year. The crowds just amaze me. And, and everybody's so excited when the Grandma's Marathon comes there. And, and there's something special about Duluth. You know, it, it, you know you're right at the gateway to the to the Boundary Waters, you're up in the North Woods, you got the big pond there, Lake Superior, you know, that you get to run next to. And the, the course, to me, it's the perfect marathon course. It's it's not flat, it's not hilly, but there's just enough of angulation and ups and downs and, and to where it, I think it actually helps you than hurts you. And it all those different little checkpoints along the way, some of the little the little towns you go through, you know, along the, the North shore there and you get the big crowds. And then of course, once you cross the Lester river there and get into right into the city itself and the crowds just continue to get, you know, bigger and bigger. And, and uh, they just cheer everybody on all the way to the finish from the very first person to the very last person. And then there's something special. There's no race I've ever been to that, that, brings out the joy in in people running and finishing an event like that than the grandma's marathon and their their after race party that they have and the big tent set up and the live music. I know people that never run, that have never run, but on grandma's marathon weekend, they head to Duluth to watch the runners and to party the Friday and Saturday night. So you it's just everything about grandma's marathon, it just it, it's just a a a triple class A race and event. And, and uh, I, I look forward to coming to Duluth every, every year. All right. Now I want to talk about something that has fascinated me for so long. And if you remember back to 1982, the scene, the Boston marathon, the epic, and it has gone down as such in sports lore, the duel in the sun. You and Alberto Salazar in Boston, duking it out in one of the most compelling marathons of all time. So let's talk a little bit about the race. Uh, you you have been a two-time Olympic trial qualifier. Um, you were establishing yourself with great credibility. And then you go up against uh, the legendary Alberto Salazar. What did you think going into the race that day? Well, Peter, I was uh, I was excited, like no get out. Obviously, you know the 
Boston Marathon is the granddaddy of them all. Nothing against grandmas, obviously, but the Boston Marathon, I mean, it's been around for a hundred and some years. And and uh, just to be out there in the excitement and the, the uh, I mean, I, I remember getting out there, you know, a few days before the race and I, I just had to really just almost calm myself down literally every time I went out because, you know, everybody, you can just feel the buzz in the air and, and I'll never forget, uh, I'll never forget, this is uh, three, four days before the race, and Alberto flew in from Eugene, Oregon, where he was living and going to, you know, I think he just had got done with college out there. And uh, I'm laying in bed and trying to get to sleep. And, you know, the news doesn't come on until after 11 o'clock. Well, they go live to Logan Airport because Alberto, of course, hometown kid, is uh, just arrived from Eugene and and they've got all kinds of microphones stuck in his face. And I, I'll never forget this. One of the reporters said, so Alberto, why did you decide to run Boston this year? And he goes, <laughs> I remember he said something like this. Well, I looked at who my competition was going to be. And I knew there was no way anybody could beat me. And I remember, man, I, I sat up in bed and I'm thinking, don't you think you're unbeatable, mister? Because I'm going to go and I'm going to do my best to do it on, <laughs> on, on Monday. And um, everything about it, you know, it was just, I, I was so nervous and excited. And the first few miles, I, I felt terrible, Peter. I mean, we went out, we hit the first mile in four minutes and 33 seconds. And and I'm thinking, this is nuts. But my goal going in, I didn't care what time I ran. If it took 2.15 to win it, fine. But my goal was, going into it, my goal was to win. That was nothing else. And the fact that we were able to, to run a 208 marathon that day and on a very warm day, um, it still just kind of almost blows my mind thinking back at that. But, um, and I had no idea how fast we were running because back then at that time, you know, their checkpoints were the little towns you went through. So um, I knew we were running pretty quick, but I really had no idea, you know, that we were going to run sub 209 that day. But you know, I can't remember what I had for lunch today, but I can remember that race like I ran it this morning. Yeah, and uh, were you working with uh, Coach Squires at that point? Yes, I was. And and Coach, I'd say I had a lot of great coaches from my high school coach, you know, Coach Riedel that, you know, he, you know, he made the sport fun. And then my uh, coach in college, Coach John Folkrod, and, and you, know, uh, you know, he – one day, I remember, I'll never forget this. He put his arm around my shoulder and he says, you know, Dick, I really believe you can become as good of a runner as you want to be. And I never, ever forgot that. And, and um, but yeah, and when I got hooked up with Coach Squires, I mean, he took me to a level, Peter, that, I, you know, I, I couldn't even dream that far out there and, and where it took me. But uh, he was great to work with. You know, I'm here in Minnesota. He was out in Boston. He'd send me my weekly workouts on a, on a beer-stained napkin from the Elliott Lounge, which was, of course, back then the big runners running out. And then he'd call me once a week. And honest to gosh, I remember one time telling Coach, I said, Coach, you can't call me after 9 o'clock at night. He goes, how come, Dickie? He goes, because I go, Coach, I go, you got me so fired up when I get off the phone with you. I want to go out and do a 20-miler. I said I can't get to sleep. But, you know, Coach Squires would give you the – the shirt off of his back. And uh, he had me so ready for that race that, um, you know, I could have, I could have run it in my sleep that day, honestly, not that I would have, you know, finished where I did, but I'm just saying 
he had me so ready physically and mentally to to run the race that day that uh, I'll be forever grateful for that and for many other things he's done for me over the years. Yeah, and as I recall, uh, well, the uh, it was about two seconds different between you and Salazar, and Salazar uh, uh, broke the Boston Marathon course record and an American record as well that day. Yeah, we both did. It was actually 1.6 seconds. They, Of course, then they round things up back then to two seconds. But, yeah, we were both fortunate to, you know, it's it's crazy, Peter. I mean, I, I, I remember when I crossed the finish line, and I we were both just spent. If that race would have been another 100 yards, I don't know if either one of us would have finished. But I remember kind of looking up at the clock, and it's still reading 208-something. And, and half of me... I had never been so happy and excited about anything in my life. And the other half of me had never been so disappointed. I'm thinking to myself, I just ran a 208 marathon, but I got second. Something doesn't seem right there. And, you know, that was the first time in history that two men had ever gone under two hours and nine minutes in the same marathon. And, and, um, but I remember getting back to my hotel room, Peter, and, and, uh, sitting in a hot, soaking in a hot bathtub in the hotel room, which was, I should have been in a coal ice bath, I guess, back then. But of course, we didn't know that. But I remember thinking, what could I have done differently? And I literally went back in my mind to the start at Hopkinton and literally, literally retraced every step of every mile from the start to the finish of what I could have done differently and where I would have finished first and Alberto would have finished second. And when I got done, Peter, honest to goodness, I had a smile from ear to ear because absolutely nothing. I mean, there was nothing I could have done differently that I would have could have won that race. I mean, I it just happened to be I just got all kicked. You know, it came down basically, you know, after I got rid of that cramp with a half mile to go, and then I caught back up to him with about 150 meters to go. And, and then it, it came down to basically a 100-meter sprint. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, when, when you know you gave it your very, very best, how can you be disappointed in that? It's often been said that for you and Salazar, there was before Boston and after Boston. And I think you told me one time that race extracted uh, an enormous toll, not just physically. I mean, uh, what say you about those sort of that sort of lead-in? Oh, Peter, you're right. He, and and I, I talked to Dr. Dave Martin. I'm sure you remember Dr. Dave Martin. You know, he was a, a running guru and a, a professor at Georgia State. In fact, I was very fortunate to be one of the athletes that that uh, with this Olympic development project where I would get tested on his treadmills a few times a year. But, um, you know, and I, I asked, I was talking to Dr. Martin about this. And, you know, that day, both Alberto and I pushed beyond what our brain was telling us to do. We basically were able to shut off our brain and push beyond that. And neither one of us ever ran that fast again. And I was told by Dr. Martin, he said, your, your brain has got like a carburetor in it. And he said, you, you ran that darn, you know, dial up way past the red line way too long. And honest to gosh, Peter, after that race, 
if I got into that that same position again, like I was a boss where I needed to push beyond what my brain was telling me to do, I couldn't do it. it I could not do it. It would just, it would back me off. I And I, I thought, gosh, am I getting mentally weak? And I can't push beyond what I want to, you know, my brain's telling me to do it. And, uh, and I talked to Dr. Martin about this and he told me, he says, no, he said, you went beyond what your brain got to the point where it might not be around anymore. So then after that, it basically you went into survival mode. Your brain would put you into survival mode and said, we're not letting you get past that again. And Alberto, if he was chatting with us right now, he would more than likely tell you the same thing. Cause we, him and I have talked about this over the years, you know, and, uh, so yeah, I, but I tell you, if I guess if I could have one race where I, the, my brain and the good Lord let me push beyond what I was really maybe capable of physically and mentally to do, you can't figure much of a better race than the Boston Marathon to do it at. No, and there's a marvelous book, A Duel in the Sun, uh, published uh, in 2006 by John Brandt, which uh, uh, deals with this subject. When you caught your breath at the finish line, what did you say to Salazar? When we finished, I mean, thankfully there were volunteers right there to grab us because otherwise we would have both been on the ground. And and I just, I kind of budged my way over next to Alberto and I put my arm around him and and uh, we hugged each other. And, and, you know, I said to him, I said, man, that was a great race. And, and, uh, and he said the same thing back to me. And then what really, you know, I know Alberto has taken a lot of grief over the years, even back then and, and then more recently in his coaching and stuff. But I'll tell you, you know, one of the most coveted awards in running is to be up on that podium after the finish of the Boston Marathon as the governor and the mayor of Boston and other dignitaries put that laurel wreath on your head. I mean, that's something that very few people get to do. And and I'll never, for, I'll never ever forget this as long as I live, you know, as... Alberto was in front of me and they had some state troopers trying to get him over to the podium where the governor and the mayor and his family was. And I had some other security people trying to get me into the Prudential garage, insurance building garage to talk to the media. And as I was walking by, you know, Alberto was already up on the podium and he reached down and he brought me up on that podium with him. And when they were raising Alberto's arm in victory, he grabbed mine and raised it right along with his. And I will never forget that as long as I live. So things uh, were going really well. And Dick, I, I I know you'll allow me to speak about this because it, it has been the subject of a, a part of your very important message that you give when you come to grandma's each year to speak. November 13th, 1989, pretty pivotal day in your life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. No, boy, it's, well, that's coming up here. 20, 31 years. Yeah. I got in a bad farming accident and I mean, really bad. I got wrapped up in a piece of power equipment and, and uh, I mean, I got all busted up and I almost lost my left leg. And um, it, it was uh, a long, long recovery to get back from that. But, you know, I, I had such wonderful, you know, uh, people that cared about me, you know, from my then wife, Mary at the time and, and doctors and, and nurses and surgeons and nutritionists and, and people from all over, especially Minnesota, but really from all over the country. And, you know, we, we, uh, we didn't have 
we thought we had health insurance, but we had switched companies a few weeks before and we were told we were covered, but then we got a call and said we weren't. So we had, you know, a hundred thousand plus dollars worth of hospital bills. And I tell you, Peter, the, the, the support and the outpouring from people, especially in Minnesota, but around the country, every nickel was paid for through generous donations. And and the Grandma's Marathon, they were one of the first, first people organization to to reach out and say, Dick, what can we do to help? And they they did a couple of different um, uh, fundraisers at Grandma's. Uh, I remember one time at the, at the Grandma's Saloon in Delhi, I think they had a big thing that to help raise money and, and, uh, a number of other people and organizations did too. And, and that was, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate and, and, you know, and then I had a little string of accidents, you know, I got hit by a truck and I got hit by a car and, uh, the truck I got hit by running, you know, I tumbled off a cliff and more surgeries and, you know, and then, and then I ended up getting addicted to narcotic painkillers and, and, um, Golly, it's hard to believe that's almost been a quarter century ago now. And but but once again, through all the you know the trials and tribulations, you know I've never questioned God or anybody else. These things happen in life, and and you just try to to, to wake up in the morning and 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 move forward. And and again, when I especially with the addiction to the narcotics, you know um, because of the runner I once was, it, you know got a lot of heavy coverage and whatnot. And, you know, I really put my family into a, in a bad situation and, you know, the, 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 the bad attention that it all brought. And, but again, I had the support again, grandma's marathon and so many individuals and people reaching out to help. And now I've, you know, God willing, it'll be 24 years of sobriety from the narcotics coming up in, in February. And, and uh, so I've been very, very fortunate that, um, you know, we all go through setbacks in our lives and it's, you know, you just got to keep moving forward. And the biggest probably setback tragedy that has ever had was when I lost my son, Andy, five years ago. And, um, you know, he, uh, he, uh, got back from the Iraqi war and he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and five years ago, my son Andy took his life right outside of Detroit Lakes, and um, and that was that was absolutely devastating. It made everything else in my life, that Boston Marathon, all those accidents, surgeries, the drug addiction, seemed like a walk in the park. And um, but you know, I knew when after Andy passed, and I had some time to reflect and and, and try to get over the grief a little bit, I knew the last thing Andy would want me to do is just, you know, sit and, and, and not be myself and, and move forward. And, um, <clears throat> so that's what I've, you know, done and, and, and try to do every single day. And, and now, you know, I, I've been invited to many, um, suicide awareness events to speak and, and tell Andy's story and, and, um, and now that, and that helps me a lot. You know, a lot of people that go through something like that, they want to just bury it in the back of their mind and, and never talk about it. But for me, it's actually very beneficial to not have to keep that all locked up inside me. And, and then knowing 
that maybe from what I say and talk about Andy, that maybe somebody else will realize that their life is worth a lot, no matter how bad you think it is. And so by for me being able to do that, Andy's death isn't in vain and and um and it brings me joy and it brings me happiness and it gives me and leaves me with hope because I, I know someday again, someday I, I I will be able to put my arms around Andy and give him a big hug again. And um I talk to him every day and um he's doing good and that makes me happy. Well, beautifully said, Dick. And I, I think anybody who knows Dick Beardsley knows of his forthrightness and uh, his honesty. Um, and I know those are incredibly difficult subjects to talk about, Dick. But in doing so, you affect positively so many people and keep Andy's memory alive very much. I, I, I can tell you, uh, and now I'm tearing up here a little bit, uh, from being in that conference room at Grandma's, and people hear your story. It's a really a story of recovery and redemption. They're moved. They're crying. They're, and, and they take a little of that with them when they run that race, Dick. And I think you're right, Peter. And, and you know, and I've, <clears throat> I still get choked up. Um, you know, it, it, you know, you know me, Peter. I I wear my heart on my sleeve, and um, <clears throat> sometimes it's like, but that's who I am. And I'm not at six, almost sixty five. I'm not changing who I am now. That's for sure. And and but you know, that's what I feel. You know, when I share those stories, and some of you know. Some of them you you're crying because you're laughing so hard, and other time other stories you're crying because it's not a very pleasant thing to perhaps listen to. But but in the end, you know it it hopefully it showed people that you know we all have our ups and downs, and and sometimes things you'll have a stretch when things aren't going very well, but you just can't you just can't ever lose hope and and um, Years ago, I remember reading something. I wish I coined it, but I hadn't. But and I, but I'm a true believer in it. You know, they they say you can live 40 days without food, seven days without water. You can live a few minutes without air, but you can't live. Gosh darn it! But you can't live one second without hope. And for me, being able to get up there and and um, and tell a few stories. And if anybody leaves with anything, if they leave with one thing and that's hope, then mission accomplished. And, um, you know, and maybe some days on those, those grandma's marathon days when the going's tough and maybe they can think about some of those stories I told and maybe that'll, that'll help them put one foot in front of the other and get to that next mile marker and then the next mile marker after that and then eventually to the finish line. Everybody that's running in the marathon, uh, whether they run for performance or just the achievement of doing something that not everybody does. Um, they all have a story and they're motivated by something. And, uh, I, I, I think your, 
your willingness to share this difficult story um, is super important. And it puts a lot about sport and life into context. Absolutely, Peter. You know, and like you said, everybody's got a story. And, uh, and that's why, you know, people say, oh, Dick, gosh, you're a good speaker. No, I'm not a good speaker. I, I think I'm a good storyteller. I, I, you know, and that's basically what I do. I, I try to use life stories to get a message across. And because, you know why I do that, Peter? Because every one of us, you, me, every person has a story. And I think, you know, they might not have gone through this or that that I went through, but they might have gone through something similarly. And, and, uh, and everybody can relate because we all have a story. And, uh, and you're right, Peter. I tell you, I watch, you know, when I watch the Grandma's Marathon, up, I'm up in that lead vehicle, so I get to see all the, the fast guys running and stuff. But, and I get great enjoyment out of that, believe me, because I'm, I, uh, I'm in awe of what they can do. And it's hard for me to believe that at one time I could run like that. But I get as much, if not more, inspiration of the folks that are out there, that are out there struggling and, and they're out there for four or five hours. And, and, uh, and, and then you see that look on their face when they finish and, and that, a, that look of achievement and accomplishment. And I've always said this, you know, no matter how slow or how fast you run a marathon, when you cross that finish line, it will change your life forever. And I truly believe that in a, in a positive way. There'll never, ever be another thing in your life that you won't at least attempt to want to try and do. You won't ever say, well, I, I can't do that without at least trying. And that's what it, life is all about. It's about trying. And we don't always succeed. But the last thing any of us want to do is look back and say, in my younger days, why didn't I try when I had the opportunity at that age? And that's the, the marathon just, it, it, it's the perfect distance. If it was, if it was any longer, it would be too tough. It was, if it was any shorter, it wouldn't be tough enough. If it's just the perfect distance to test your mentality and your physical body and your spiritual wealth and everything else that goes into it. And um, it's just a marvelous event and you can't find a better marathon in the world to run and to achieve all those things we just talked about than the grandma's marathon. Well, Dick, I just can't tell you how much uh, I've enjoyed this. Uh, it's It's been wonderful, and uh, I will certainly look uh, forward to seeing you in June, my friend. Thank you for taking the time. Peter, you're the best, buddy, and I, I look forward to, to you uh, seeing you next uh, summer also, and have a great winter of skiing, buddy. I will. I will. That's Dick Beardsley, and that is it for this week. The Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast is brought to you with the support of Essentia Health, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us, tell you what you think, and tell your friends. We want to thank again this week's guest, Dick Beardsley, who ran like the wind with class and grace always. Grandma's Marathon is proudly presented by Toyota, Members Cooperative Credit Union, and ASICS. Run fast, run far, and have fun, everybody. I'm Peter Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.